Welcome to Incredible Healthcare Leaders, a podcast where we interview the healthcare industry's key players on topics like current events, their successes, and their failures. I'm your host, Imana Bouzaid. I'm the CEO of Incredible Health, the fastest growing career marketplace for healthcare workers in the US, and the only marketplace technology that helps hospitals and health systems hire permanent, experienced nurses in 20 days or less. We're here today with Dr. David Labarsky. Dave is the Vice Chancellor of Human Health Sciences and Chief Executive Officer for UC Davis Health, which has over 14,000 employees, 1,000 students, 1,000 faculty members, an annual operating budget of $3 billion, and approximately 1 million outpatient visits each year. The UC Davis Medical Center is a 646-bed, level one trauma hospital consistently ranked among the nation's best by US News and World Report and Beckers, and is ranked in the top 30 nationally for medical research. Dr. Labarsky also happens to be a anesthesiologist by background too. All true. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Iman. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dive into the most controversial topic that we're all dealing with these days, and that's the vaccine rollout. And we know that you've been pretty vocal about California's initial vaccine rollout. Um, curious to hear your thoughts on what you see the issues as and how you think we should be resolving them. Right. Well, each point in time during this pandemic has presented new challenges and a changing set of solutions that are optimized to deliver what we're trying to do. At first, it was just about getting the vaccine out to people who would put it into patients' arms. And there was literally no coordination whatsoever uh, and conflicting advice. Some people were saying, you know, sequester second doses until they're ready for the patients who've gotten their first dose and keep them in your freezer for a month until they're ready for them. And others were saying, no, 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 don't worry. Just give them out as first doses and we'll get the others to you. Well, eventually the state demanded that we do that and then they didn't get us the second doses and they caused all the health systems to go around scrambling like crazy people to try and make sure that our patients got their second doses. And then we went to the third party administrators, which were Kaiser and Blue Shield, and there was a differentiation that made many healthcare providers upset, which is that Kaiser was allowed to continue using its epic EMR in order to register, bill for, and track the medical issues of their patients and others who were immunized. And all the rest of the health systems were not allowed to do that and were forced to use my turn. And the problem with all of this is that the healthcare providers have been disintermediated. That is, patients who have vaccine hesitancy, those who don't have access to computers, uh, those who live in multi-generational homes, et cetera, where you know, your physician knows your condition, they weren't allowed to exercise that judgment because all the providers were told you can't prioritize your patients, you can't call in your patients, you can't make judgment decisions on behalf of the patients. First, I got a lot of shots in arms, so good for that. But now we're at the point where it's actually created an anti-equity backlog, meaning all those people who don't know how to use the computer to get logged on to my turn have been excluded. And free clinics, there are several, including UC Davis's uh, community outreach clinics, have been lambasted by the third-party administrator for you know, signing people up with pen and paper at churches and at uh, community centers. So it's really, now we're, we're at the point where we need a different solution than my turn. We need, uh, we need to reinvigorate the physicians and the nurses who are providing the shots and who know their patients. 
Okay, got it. Uh, so we're recording this in April uh, 2021. So what are you seeing in terms, I have to mention the date because, you know, every month or every week things change, right? So <laughs> It's true. It's, so true. <laughs> so uh, what is what is UC Davis doing today uh, in terms of the vaccine rollout and, and addressing the, the, these equity issues that you're highlighting? Right. So we set up a mass vaccination site relatively close to underserved communities where we rent a large hall hall. Um, we have the capability and the FTEs assigned to be able to deliver 3,500 vaccines a day or 25,000 a week. Our allocation from the state has been 2,000 a week. That has uh, left us very, very short, as you might imagine. Um, so not only are we not able to serve as a great conduit to get at our patients who might be vaccine hesitant, but we have a lot of outreach efforts. We have partnered with, uh, uh, again, we're in the middle of an underserved area, local churches with local high schools in underserved areas to set up pop-up clinics in, in uh, partnership with the county and uh, with Dignity Health System. Um, we have uh, reached out to the uh, Mexican consulate to provide vaccines to both the documented and the undocumented because COVID doesn't care where you came from. It just cares that you're not immunized. And we're doing everything humanly possible to make sure that every community is being served and vaccinated. But as I've said, we can only do so much. There has to be a really focused effort on the underserved who unfortunately are either not getting all the information they need or not getting all the right information to make a decision that's best for them because otherwise we would see vaccination rates uh, equal to that of the white population and, and we don't see that. At Incredible Health, our mission is to help healthcare professionals live better lives and help them find and do their best work. So this next set of topics is really about how you think about your workforce and, and, and your many employees and many clinicians that work at UC Davis. So the last 12 months uh, has been very challenging for healthcare workers and for health systems overall, uh, given the pandemic. And your team is no exception. Your nurses, your doctors, you know, they have worked not just 100% this year, they've worked like 150% this year. How do you keep your team, especially such a large team, motivated in, in such a tough time? Right. You know, that's a great question. The first thing is to make sure that you're appropriately staffed for the extra work. Um, I know you said we had 14,000 employees, and you're right, but now we have 16,000 employees. And we've been growing, uh, actually, throughout the COVID crisis, and we've made sure that the extra burden of volumes was not uh, resulting in an extra burden on an individual employee. So we've tried to keep up with the hiring that's necessary to, to handle the increased volumes. That's number one. And, and unlike most other health systems, we literally never shut down or decreased our volumes. Uh, matter of fact, we were back to 100% volumes within nine days of Gavin Newsom releasing healthcare systems to take care of essential care patients. So, you know, we've, we were very fortunate that our patients had that faith in us. But the other thing that we're doing is we're really focusing on uh, physician and caregiver wellness, both nurses, not only nurses, but also others like unit secretaries and everybody else who, you know, they came to work every single day and they were worried about their own health. Um, they were worried about the health of their families. They were worried about carrying COVID home. And so the one thing that we could do besides being very, very uh, emphatic on always providing uh, PPE. Uh, we never had a shortage either. Uh, special kudos to my boss, Chancellor May, and uh, the vice chancellor for research on the main campus uh, who gathered up all of the PPE that a gigantic research university has and basically loaned it to us to tide us over those times at the beginning when everybody was, was really short. So making sure we had 
protections for our, our employees when that was all we could give. And then as soon as we got the vaccine, by uh, delivering that vaccine as fast as we humanly could to all the uh, employees who would take it and uh, and doing so in a way that was convenient for them. So, you know, at the entrance to the hospital, a big auditorium, very safe, um, open 17 hours a day, seven days a week, so that every single person on every single shift had an equal opportunity to get vaccinated. So um, I think that's the way that we've maintained great esprit de corps here, which is that we've worn our concern for our employees on our sleeves. Okay. And let's talk a little bit more about their mental health, right? This has mentally been a very tough year for healthcare workers. Are there any specific initiatives or uh, ideas that you have that, because there's going to be many hospital executives listening to this podcast. That's why I'm asking. Um, are there any initiatives? I'm sorry, you, guys. <laughs> yeah, anything you've implemented to help with things like mental health and fatigue uh, that your, your nurses and other clinical workers are dealing with? Well, yes, of course. There's a variety of different interventions, one of which is obviously uh, creating a resource um, websites so that if people need to talk to a mental health professional, they can. The other thing is to remind people that if they just lean on their neighbor, on their coworker, if they share their concerns and their stories with each other, that that goes a long way to letting people know that they're not in it alone. Um, there are concrete things that we've done, which is, you know, create series of um, webinars for people to focus on meditation, gratefulness, mindfulness, not only at work, but also especially outside of work, uh, to remember what's great about life um, and not to lose track of that in the press of all the work that require, that's required. And also to take some time out to... Um, you know, show staff appreciation. And it was not that hard to do, whether you're rolling around a cart with just some candies and toys, you know, uh, or, uh, or you're just, um, you know, getting the, the donations early on from so many vendors. And by vendors, I mean like restaurants and movie chains and movie theaters and everybody, you know, who had excess stuff. And they were like just giving us food and treats and, and ice cream and for our staff and making sure that we, we made our staff know how appreciated they were in our community. It went a long way. Okay, that's fantastic. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, about you, right? As CEO. This was also a tough year for CEOs, hospital CEOs and health system CEOs. Can you walk us through some of the more challenging parts of the last year uh, that you had to deal with? Yeah. You know, there was a run on Rogaine in the, in the, in the pharmacies. You know, I used to have hair like you, right? In this, well, no, not really. Okay. Uh, it didn't cause me to lose hair, but it did cause me to grow some hair. I got my, my COVID uh, sort of beard going, you know, like a lot of people changed up a few things in their life. And I think that I actually listened to some of the same things that I was asking my employees to do. And although I don't do enough meditation and enough yoga and enough mindfulness, um, I did actually uh, adopt uh, the idea of spending a minute or two each morning before I rush into the daily maelstrom to just remind myself about gratefulness. Because uh, there is so much to be grateful for. And uh, that includes actually uh, still having a job every day. A lot of our uh, friends uh, around where I live, downtown area of Sacramento, uh, a lot of service industry people. I live across the street from the Sacramento Kings Stadium where I used to go in and see a game. Um, you know, it's, there's nothing like watching your team lose all the time. It's fantastic. And, and, uh, uh, but it's fun. 
And we lost all that. And but there was a lot still to be grateful for. And that uh, so that's number one. And then actually knowing that at a time like this, leadership, compassion, and empathy never mattered more. And uh, trying to uh, to deliver that on a daily basis, I'm sure I failed innumerable times. But at least from an intent perspective, I tried. And uh, the provision of town halls and, and sharing information and transparency as broadly as possible about how we were doing, where we were going, what our concerns were for the next week, because every week was changing. You know, one week it was nasal swabs, the next week it was face shields, the <laughs> next week, right, it's, uh, it's getting enough supplies for the PCR machines we actually have. It was never ending. And for, I think, by just making it clear to everybody that we were just trying our best really mattered. There was one point last year, maybe you've erased it from your memory, <laughs> where you were dealing with a pandemic and then there were wildfires threatening your, your system, right? And I, oh, I believe yes. you had hospitals that were evacuating or that was about to evacuate or something like that, right? So yeah. with those moments, how did you, how did you mentally deal with, with a crisis like that? It's like, it's like a double crisis, like it's a crisis on top of another but one. It, it was because not only were the healthcare facilities that we partnered with being threatened uh, around Napa uh, and uh, in Tahoe area, but our people were being affected because we have a lot of people who work at Davis and in Sacramento that... They, their homes and their families, live, you know, are an hour away where the wildfires were happening. So we had some, we had employees who were impacted, also on top of this, further causing some shortages in the in the workforce and losing everything and taking up donations for them in the midst of our own crisis. But we still managed to do that. Now, probably uh, the thing that affected me personally the most. Because um, we, we were able to take care of, of, of those individuals. There weren't that many, and luckily there weren't that many injuries. We're the only Northern California Regional Burn Center, and our ICUs were totally filled with COVID. So um, it was really good that, uh, that we didn't get that influx. But sadly, many of the vineyards and uh, structures that I love in Napa were burned and the and the vineyards uh, and the crops uh, destroyed and uh, so I'm doing I'm doing my part by increasing my wine purchases this year uh, <laughs> That's awesome. from them. do you feel better prepared for future crises I do this has taught me so much we have to build uh, or rebuild most of our hospital beds we're going to replace about 400 of our 625 beds uh, because of seismic reasons over the next 10 years and as I have begun uh, the planning and construction documents for our gigantic California Tower, uh, which is more than 1.1 million square feet. Um, I'm working on trying to make all 400 rooms ICU adaptable so that, God forbid, we have another pandemic that rages more out of control than even this one, or we end up like Southern California, which was overwhelmed. Or there's a combined effort of nature and infectious diseases to overwhelm us, whether it's an earthquake in a pandemic or a fire in a pandemic. I mean, California is a big state and we don't have quite enough ICU beds for these types of disasters. So I'm trying to do our part to make sure we're ready for the next one. And would you say those are the biggest lessons learned or more around preparation or any other lessons that you want to share that you've learned from the last from these multiple crises you've dealt with in the last 12 months? <laughs> right. Well, um, you know, I've learned that there is, you know, as always, transparency and trust in your people. And I don't mean just your direct reports, but in all the people in the organization and treating them like adults and not trying to hide the difficulties from them, but trusting them to help, you know, kind of 
pick up the uh, wagon and, and, and move it, you know, back on the road with us it was really the right thing to do. Um, you know, sometimes you worry you're going to panic your troops or something like that. But uh, healthcare workers are incredibly resilient. You know, they were they were the bulwark, right? I mean, coming in every single day, 24-7, taking care of patients, not knowing really, honestly, if how dangerous it was. It turned out we had very little uh, spread from patients to staff uh, once we, you know, perfected our protective equipment uh, processes. But even so, at the beginning, it was dangerous. And uh, just being honest with them about it and, and, and constantly updating people, uh, always the right thing to do. All right. So let's talk about the future in terms of the for the vaccine rollout at UC Davis. Uh, you know, we had a, a guest on the podcast, Dr. Mark Boom, the CEO of Houston Methodist. And he has a policy where everyone, his entire staff must get the vaccine. And if you do not get the vaccine, you can essentially no longer be employed at Houston Methodist. Um, curious, how are you how are you going to be thinking about, you know, you'll, you'll have a small percentage of your workforce who don't want to take it. How are you thinking about that that small group, hopefully small group of uh, individuals? Right. Um, so first of all, kudos to Mark. I, I, I know him and I know that he's at the forefront of the United States in that. Um, our lawyers have unfortunately told us we cannot mandate it yet. We hope to mandate it, but we expect opposition, um, you know, University of California mandated the flu vaccine this year and we got sued um, because people didn't want to comply. Um, we expect even more complaints, frankly. You know, I've been trying to promote, uh, you know, vaccine awareness and, uh, you know, so everybody sees like how many people really are vaccinated. But um, the unions are not supportive of even wearing a badge with a color-coded dot on it to show that you're vaccinated. They think that that will lead to discrimination um, against those who are not vaccinated. And I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, you know, I, I always respect uh, other people's opinions who come from an entirely different perspective. But there's not only herd immunity we're trying to achieve, it's herd mentality. And the idea that it's safe and seeing so many people around you who are just fine, who have gotten the vaccine, I think will, will and knowing that you can look and say, wow, my friend John and Billy and Iman, they, they got the vaccine. I, it's probably okay for me. And we're missing out on that opportunity right now. And I think that every, we should do, be doing everything humanly possible to create, whether it's a vaccine passport or a vaccine tattoo on your forehead that says, yeah, I'm vaccinated, I'm fine, and I get to go different places than you do if you don't get the vaccine. Because we've got to make it beneficial to have the vaccine if we really want to move the needle on, on all the people. Got it. Okay, let's, let's talk about healthcare innovation. Your team has embraced innovation like Incredible Health, for example, your HR team use, uses Incredible Health to hire uh, permanent nurses. What is, what is your, uh, and sorry, and you've also dedicated entire parts of your life to innovation. I know you've spent a lot of time in medical research yourself. What is your philosophy on innovation in healthcare? And then we'll go deeper after that. Sure. I'll just, I'll just say that I was an early adopter of the electronic medical record in the perioperative space that started 30 years ago, just give you an idea, well before it was a popular idea, and started doing big data uh, analyses um, and, uh, and using big data for uh, optimization strategies, a lot of papers on that a long time ago. So I am a firm believer in the progression of computerization and data analysis and big data, and now the introduction of AI and ML. Uh, we just published a paper out of here around its impact on uh, being able to uh, create uh, better testing paradigms uh, using 
using that uh, with uh, much less expensive uh, opportunities out of our lab for COVID-19. There's so many more opportunities. So I think that's number one. You know, there's four or five things that are happening all at once. One is the idea of collecting all of this data and then not knowing what to do with it and then and then overlaying AI and ML onto it to derive some intelligence, wisdom, and predictive power to guide action. I think we're going to see that and we're, we're all in. We've got an AI ML center here and a great new uh, CIO and chief digital health officer, Ashisha Trija, uh, who's helping lead this charge. The second thing is the idea of, uh, you know, the internet of all things and really remote patient monitoring and the idea that medicine will be always on, meaning you're constantly monitored by the internet for a variety of different vital signs and physical signs, you know, Alexa, measuring your cough, cough frequency and tenor, that type of thing. So the internet of things, your medical care is going to be always on and you're going to actually see human beings by exception when all of your internet things tell you that, wow, you're a little out of your norm. The third thing is robotics. Uh, we're going to see a lot of things done uh, without human interaction and making sure that we're logged into that uh, in a way that many other industries already are. Last uh, but not least, medicine is going to be from the inside out. Uh, luckily in California, we have had uh, the refunding billions of dollars for the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Um, we have our own Institute of Regenerative Medicine here that was the recipient of large sums of money in the previous one. And we are looking to really take cell and gene therapy, like I said, so that med you're never going to take a pill again. We're going to fix your genes. We're going to fix your cells. And you're going to heal yourself from the inside out. That's where we're going. And I'm tripling down on all of that. That's where all my investment is going. That's awesome. So all the uh, initiatives that you just mentioned are patient facing. Uh, how are you thinking about things like your backend operations, kind of like the you, know, you have some major costs in your health system, right? To deliver all that care. How are you thinking about innovation in your kind of your backend systems? Right. So maybe not innovative in the big I sense of the word, but the little incremental uh, sense of the word. You know, the UC systems don't uh, have a history, even though we're a single dollar organization and together the 10th largest hospital system in the US and, uh, you know, the largest hospital system in California, you know, at about $18 billion a year, we dwarf almost everybody else. But we don't really work together. But the pandemic and all the remote work has opened up the opportunity that instead of arguing where our revenue center should be located, we can put it in the middle of Bakersfield and have it serve all five UCs across the state and only occasionally get everybody together, right? Have a combination of working from home and other things and really working to create the hybrid workplace of the future and to take uh, advantage of the efficiencies of scale that will allow the five of us to do some things together that, you know, we talk to UCSF all the time about combining our rev cycle. And we just argue about, well, where's it going to be located? Is it going to be in San Francisco or is it going to be in Sacramento? Well, now it can be located in Vacaville, halfway in between us, and no one would care because everybody's going to be uh, together, if you will, only a little part of the time. And the rest of the time, they're just living in San Francisco or Sacramento, where they currently live. So uh, it opens up all sorts of opportunities around innovation in the workplace. Okay. Why is that little lie <laughs> versus big eye? Well, big eye, big eye is, 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 is when you're, I mean, so let me tell you about the big eye. So there's a project that we're working on, which... It wants to take, um, you know, ResMed, uh, which is the biggest, you know, uh, uh, sleep apnea machine delivery group. They have reams of billions of data points. And they also bought the largest internet-enabled inhaler device, right, that communicates with the internet. But they've never really put those two things together 
with an EMR, you know, all five UCs actually have a common EMR. And we're talking about, well, how do we actually look predictively using AI and ML on how people are using their sleep apnea machine, how people are using their inhalers, what predicts an actual deterioration, and how do you get at people to actually improve their therapy, keep them out of the ED, keep them out of the ICU, and actually make them better at home, never having touched a physician, just because the data is telling us that something is going on and we can, we can tweak their, uh, their medication regimens or their utilization of the devices they already own, that we can keep them from actually needing to see us. That is how we're really going to bend the cost curve in medicine and how we're going to make people uh, have greater longevity. And that, that to me is great. I mean, that's a big eye type thing. So, uh, but that's because I guess I'm an academician at heart. I, 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 I <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say that that this the sleep apnea improvement versus the revenue cycle improvement. You know, in, term, <laughs> in terms of dollars saved or however, whatever metric you want to use. Yeah, um, I, I know, yeah, but it, it's, on this. <laughs> I'm still a doctor, you know. So <laughs> yep, the yep. patient stuff makes me, you know, is more exciting to me. But no, it's not the only thing. Uh, as as your firm is an incredible, well, it is actually patient facing. And let me tell you why your firm is patient facing. Because when you deliver a nurse who wants to be at the bedside that they're at, patient engagement goes up. Effectiveness of prescribed medical therapies goes up. Recovery morale goes up. And all of the workforce's morale goes up when people are happy at their workplace. And so having the match.com of nursing, um, you know, <laughs> working for us is the same as having you working for our patients, which is really critical. You're absolutely right. At the end of the day, it does come, it does come down to patient outcomes and patient care, even, even if it is a back-end process like hiring, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, ultimately, it's going to touch the patient. And then, so as you're thinking about the future, how do you think healthcare is going to change for like the average patient? I'm asking you this because you are a doctor by background and you've spent so much time in medical research. Well, it is going to change tremendously. Um, you know, I had this big vision that we were going to actually have virtual health at UC Davis. We, are the, we started, we built the telehealth backbone for all of California, but we were doing mm, 10 virtual visits a day, right? <laughs> and actually right before COVID hit, I actually, and I started with myself, I said every single person has to do either a real or mock virtual visit, just so you know how the technology works. Okay. Every single one of my thousand physicians had to do that. Literally, they finished January of 2019 and then COVID hit and we had the first uh, community acquired case in February come to UC Davis. Yeah, January and, 2020. Uh-huh. And so making that investment in people's ability to use technology is what drove the change and allowed us not only to do the care during COVID, but we've carried that through and, uh, you know, we've seen 10% more ambulatory patients that we've ever seen with the same amount of facilities. There's more access and about 15 to 20% of those visits continue to be virtual. That is where we're going. That is, we're going to continue to see more and more choice for patients and the, especially poor patients. They don't get paid time off. It's a lot easier to take your lunch hour than it is to take your whole day right, to go sit and, sit and travel to a doctor's office. For someone who's taking care of an elderly parent, it's really hard to hire a, a sitter so you can leave your elderly parent and go get your health care. 
right? It's really hard for you to load up your elderly parent into the car and drive them down to the clinic if maybe there's only a minor tweak that's needed and it can be accomplished via a virtual visit. There's so much more that is good about this, right, than bad. I mean, that's one of the silver linings. So we're going to see that really explode and we're going to begin to see remote patient monitoring explode in the home. And virtual visits exploded because patient, provider, and, and payers were all incentivized all at the same time to get to it. We haven't done that with remote patient monitoring. We need to make it so that hospitals don't look at it as if they're losing business because that's what pays the bills, right? We really need to, if we're not moving into a major value-based paradigm shift, we actually have to pay the hospitals in a transitory period so that they will encourage the utilization of remote patient monitoring so that we can keep people out of the hospital because not only is it cheaper to provide the care in that fashion, it's actually healthier because then people do not get hospital-acquired infections. It's been shown in those systems that have single payers, Canada, Israel, England, that remote patient monitoring and hospital-at-home care has been a tremendous asset, um, and it's not nearly as uh, utilized in uh, the United States. And I think that we now have the technology and the virtual visit experience that will allow us to really change uh, how care is delivered and the richness of that care. Meaning, you know, a virtual visit right now is, okay, you're seeing the same doctor for the same limited amount of time, but the same lack of memory that you had in the office, right? But when you say, just like when you would try and buy a book from Amazon, right? It's like you'd browse, like browsing the bookcase in Amazon. All of a sudden now, I mean, you go on Amazon, your top 12 books that you're going to love, they're right there in front of you. And everything you need to read that book from a bookmark to a reading lamp to a cozy set of slippers and an extra throw pillow are all there for you to purchase, right? To make it a perfect experience. And it's a rich experience, right? It's not only a perfect experience, but they're recommending things that you, they know you're going to like, and then some stretch things that, you know, to, to just kind of throw things in front of you. It's like having the best bookshop clerk in the world. And we haven't done that yet in healthcare. We haven't taken the experience to that next level that does, that basically provides everything you need from A to Z and a rich database for you to search against, you know, that ah, someone else with your disease process really found this product helpful or found this peer group you know, you know, quite, quite useful. We don't do any of that yet over the electronic medium, but we will. And I think we're going to see healthcare really migrate there in the next couple of years. Got it. Okay. So the pandemic has accelerated a lot of things, right? You accelerated the collaboration between the UC systems. I wasn't expecting that actually, <laughs> but that's great. It accelerated the use of virtual visits. Is there anything else that you're seeing at UC Davis where it, it, it really accelerated something to do with technology and innovation? Well, I, I want to say that um, actually, I want to give Carrie Byington, the uh, executive vice president for all of UC Health, a shout out because it wasn't only COVID. Um, because she's an infectious disease expert, and this was like the, you know, something that really was right up her alley. Um, she managed to pull together the five UCs in a way they've never done. I mean, not only did the CEOs get closer and talk about administrative solutions, but we pulled together the best experts from each UC for population health, infectious diseases, critical care. We had teams of people representing really the best institutions in the United States, all sitting around a virtual table every week you know, sharing best practices. That just never happened before. And so it's not only pulling UC together, but it's really pulling best practices together on behalf of patients that really helped elevate the care that we delivered. Your HR leaders embraced technology like incredible health. 
What do you do to motivate your leaders to embrace innovation? That is something that CEOs, particularly innovative CEOs like yourself, struggle with when it comes to their leadership teams. Can you tell, share any tips <laughs> that you have for the CEOs out there or other executives that are listening where they might have peers that aren't as quick to embrace innovation and technology? I do have that. Um, but, you know, I am honestly, it's about, you know, what gets mentioned, gets uh, your focus. So, um, you know, I'm constantly lauding initiatives that uh, employ innovation, not the run-of-the-mill uh, initiatives that are important for operations or are not critically important, but really talking about how innovation enables our future um, and trying to get people excited. Most people say, you're like the most excitable CEO anywhere. And I go, you haven't met Clasco. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming on the pod. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah uh, but really, I'm excited about the ideas. And, and honestly, you know, when you're the boss and they people around you see that you're excited about the application of innovation, not, not because it's IP that's gonna make you money and not because it's the latest, greatest thing that you can talk about, but it's because of the impact on the trajectory of healthcare and the potential impacts on the elimination of healthcare disparities. Again, what, one of the things that we just did is we signed a contract with Partnership Healthcare Plans of California for all 14 Northern California counties, every single Medicaid patient, to provide them digital, distal access to all of our pediatric subspecialists. Because we know that poor rural children have worse outcomes than almost anybody else, you know, in terms of disparities and outcomes. We've really taken this to really use technology to eliminate geography. And that's especially important when you're serving a large rural swath of California. We serve 33 of the 58 counties as their level one trauma center. But we have to do more than that because we're actually the area's largest subspecialty group with more than a thousand physicians, almost all of whom are subspecialists. So uh, we can do more and, and COVID has taught us we can do more. There are a lot of nurses that listen to this podcast too. Just given our, given our Sorry, audience. Sorry, my so bad. Doctor, I'm a doctor. Sometimes <laughs> I talk about doctors. I, this is, I guess you're, you're going to answer this question on behalf of your nursing leaders and your HR leaders. Um, is uh, For the nurses that are listening, why? What, what is it that makes UC Davis an amazing employer? Why, why should they pick UC Davis over me, the many other hospitals and health systems in Northern California? Because of Toby Marsh, my chief nursing officer. <laughs> so uh, this is, a, this is a, a man who has been on a quest uh, to deliver the finest core of nurses anywhere in the world. We have repetitively had a magnet status long before I got here three years ago, but we've raised the bar. Um, we have a lot of support for our nurses, not only to have an excellent work environment, but to pursue additional educational certification. Uh, more than 40% of our nurses have additional certifications in the subspecialty areas where they practice. That's way above the national average. Um, UC Davis fully supports them in that quest. We honor them, we laud them, and we have some of the best mortality statistics in the United States to back that up. And so you come to work knowing not only that you are a critical part of the delivery of healthcare to our patients and that makes our healthcare stand out uh, in a way uh, that is nation leading. And so uh, that's a reason to come and uh, I am fully committed. I don't know if people probably don't know this, but I am also a professor 
in my school of nursing here at, uh, and it's not an honorary appointment. Um, and I was a professor <laughs> in, at my school of nursing yeah. um, for 16 years when I was at the University of Miami. And I was a professor in the school of nursing at Duke 20 years ago, 25 years ago, because I helped start uh, CRNA schools at uh, both Duke and at the University of Miami and was always a firm proponent of uh, team-based practice um, and advanced practice nursing. And I'm really proud that our School of Nursing, with whom the nurses would be able to interact here, their graduate programs were ranked uh, 24th in the United States this year at the Betty Irene Moore School of Nursing. So I'm exceedingly proud of our, of our nursing school, of our nursing corps, of our commitment to uh, advanced certification uh, for our nurses who come here and work in our very high acuity. I mean, you got to like Kind of like working hard because our, our last quarter of uh, case mix index was at 2.31, which is that's super high if uh, you follow what, uh, you know, where people like Stanford and others are. That's, uh, that's where UC Davis is right now. Got it. Okay, man, we should clip that and put it in, <laughs> into the interview request that your nurse recruiters are sending out to nurses on the platform. That's fantastic. All right. And last two questions are, are uh, personal in nature. So, look, you've been incredibly successful. So this question isn't about success, but it's more about failure. Like what, what is your greatest failure that you've had in your career so far? And, and what did you learn from it? Um, in my entire career, you should never like a job so much that you stand by and let people do bad things. Because in the long run, it, it's not a good career move and it's not a good personal move. Um, at one of my previous organizations, it went through a very tough time and uh, it was losing money and they set about cutting many, many jobs and they did so in a way that was inhumane and not compassionate and, and not caring. And um, because I wasn't in charge, I didn't say enough. And I did, you know, and I think that people should always stand up for what's right. You know, that still sticks with me because I know a lot of good people who were unnecessarily fired because we weren't really thinking the right way about it. And uh, the person who was in charge of doing this was uh, sort of a cost cutter, head chopper type person. And, and I was afraid of getting my own head chopped. And that was the wrong position to be in. I'd never be in that position again. I never, I don't expect my job to love me back, but I do expect me to do the right thing every single day day without fail. And so I think that's the, the, the most important thing to, to remember that, uh, you know, even if you, someone else is doing the bad thing, it's, it's not enough to stand to the side. And then what's the, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Who, what is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for me? I'm going to have to say that my assistant at the University of Miami there was nothing that she wouldn't do to make my life better. Her name was Garla Connor, and uh, I owe much of my success to her. You know, she would just make, you know, my mom died of Alzheimer's while I was in Miami, and it was a very long and long road. And she would just so often step in with me and, and for me to make sure that my mom was taken care of while I was taking care of all my duties in the hospital and still you know, leading the largest anesthesia training program in the world and, 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 and being the CMO of the health system. There's a very long Alzheimer's decline. And it was not a fun job to like help deal with some of the emergencies and other things that presented in my life that would have taken me away from my career and until I could free myself up. And uh, that type of selfless uh, help, really, really appreciate it. All right. That's, yeah, that's, that's amazing that an assistant did that for you. And sorry to hear about your mom too. Yeah. You know, it, well, you know, we, 
just for the record, we have one of the, the best Alzheimer's research disease centers at UC Davis and just got the largest school of medicine grant in its history for 54 million to study um, the natural progression of Alzheimer's in underserved communities and uh, to see what we can do about intervening more effectively to uh, delay that decline. So very, very excited. Uh, Charlie DeCarly is the neurologist uh, under whose name the uh, grant is and, and kudos to him for bringing glory uh, to the pursuit of what is the most important question in healthcare for United States once we finish COVID will be, what are we doing about Alzheimer's? How are we intervening? And how are we making our loved ones who are aging more protected uh, from that scourge? Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Labarsky, Dave. Uh, really appreciate Thank your you, time. Man. And, and for answering all these questions and, uh, we'll make sure that it gets to the, the nurse audiences <laughs> as okay. well as the executives that will be listening to. Well, I'm not sure I had anything unique to add. I will just say that this, uh, last year has, uh, certainly taught me many things about what's really important in life. Thank you for listening to incredible healthcare leaders. If you enjoyed the show, share the podcast with a friend and tweet at join incredible to let us know. We may give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. Remember to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Incredible Healthcare Leaders is produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Our theme music is from Purple Planet Music. I'm Imana Buzaid. See you next time.